Federal Open Market Committee decided to raise the target range for the federal funds rate. The Fed is raising interest rates from one and a quarter percent to one and a half percent. Overall, we continue to expect that the economy will expand at a moderate pace. The Fed is raising its outlook for GDP to be at 2.5 percent in 2018. While well, changes in tax policy will likely provide some lift to economic activity in coming years, the magnitude and timing of the macroeconomic effects of any tax package remain uncertain. It is appropriate to hand the baton off to fiscal policy. Additional gradual rate hikes are likely to be appropriate over the next few years. So we're hiking rates. Yep. We're going to hike again three times, perhaps in 2018. And yet there's no inflation in the economy. Even with affirming of economic growth and a stronger labor market, inflation has continued to run below the FOMC's 2% longer run objective. All we're really doing is getting back to normal here. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News team, Jim Paplava and John Leffler. Well, what can I say? The Santa Claus rally continues with the markets doing well all across the board this week. And despite the Fed raising interest rates, as expected, the market didn't seem to mind. Everything is focused on tax cuts which could come in terms of passage as soon as next week. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplava, and welcome to our final edition of Financial Sense for the Year. We have some special programs coming up towards the end of the year we think you'll enjoy. In the first hour today, Craig Johnson will join me. He thinks this market continues into next year. His words in forecast for next year, a hop, a drop, and then a pop. And his target for next year is an S&P at 2850, although it may hit 3000 during the year. He's going to talk about his favorite sectors as well as Bitcoin. And Dan Steffens will join me. He's bullish on energy. By the way, so is Craig. He thinks that could be an outperformer for next year. And of course, Ryan Paplava will be here to talk about the events of the week. A hop and a, what's he doing? Writing fairy tales or something like that? Yeah, it's a Dr. Seuss. Hop, drop, and a pop. Hop, drop, and a pop. Okay. Hop, drop, and a pop. And I'm John Leffrey. Well, the Fed made its pronouncement this week. It's going to raise interest rates. So we will take some clips from Ms. Yellen, chair of the Fed, and see what that means for investments and everything else. That'll be the first part of the big picture. And then we have a two-part series coming up. First, John Roke will be Jim's guest for the latter part of the big picture. The subject concept. Concentration of risk. You know, it was widely thought that after Dodd-Frank, the system had become safer. We'd beefed up reserves. Banks are better capitalized. But guess what? Things are changing. And risk is being concentrated in the hands of just a few institutions who may be just too big to fail during the next economic crisis. It's going to be an interesting program. All of that coming up today on the Financial Sense News Hour as a part of the big picture. And first, as we always do, we go to the master of the market stuff, Ryan Paplava. Ryan, let's talk about some of the drivers and catalysts which move the financial markets this week. What's up in the air? Obviously, the Fed had its meeting, uh, so you lead it. Sure. The main story, as you mentioned, is essentially the central banks came with their policy decisions. There was actually quite a few of them. Uh, European Central Bank left things unchanged. So did, I believe it was the uh, Bank of England uh, left things as well. Uh, Mexico raised rates. 
raised a quarter, I believe. But yeah, as expected, we had anticipated all along that the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee was going to raise rates one final time this year, and that would make it three times. And, and so they did, raised a quarter point. And so really what we wanted to look at was whether they were going to increase their forecast for rates next year. And that didn't happen. So kind of ho-hum. You know, the market kind of expected things. The market really didn't do too much. But the yield curve did a little bit. It did flatten. We had the 10-year Treasury, which has been kind of stubborn. It's been basically holding below 2.4%. It closed this Friday around 2.35%. We've been hanging out there for some time. And that didn't help financials on Wednesday, but overall, financials have had a very good December and, and they did rally all the way into the end of the week uh, when we got news on the tax reform bill and that there was an agreement. And we're hearing quite a bit that the two houses, the Senate and the House, really came together, made some compromises, and that looks like they're going to be doing a vote next week on that. So the big stories this week, the tax bill, as the Republicans get closer, we've had this anticipation for the past two months building, and the market has really responded to that every time we get these votes, and both houses have come up with their own versions, and things are running along very nicely there so far. But yeah, the central bank came and went. No real major shift in the market due to that. All right, if we move on to the other story you mentioned, of course, that's the tax reform bill that's been the subject of much conversation. You know, and it's amazing. We haven't really seen too much back and forth over this major bill. I mean, given that we haven't reformed the tax code this intrusively since the Tax Reform Act of 1986 during the Reagan administration. And both houses appear to be coming closer to their goal with the announcement that they have an agreement with details to follow. Yeah, the details, I've seen some rumors. There's been quite a few rumors since Wednesday when that announcement was made. But I haven't seen the actual details yet. And here we are, the market's closed on Friday and still have not yet seen it. But some of those rumors, I can mention some of those were like the corporate tax rate falling down to 21% instead of 20%. I found that pretty interesting because I thought both houses were pretty fairly well met at 20%. But it looks like the one thing that did adjust is that instead of taking effect in 2019 like the Senate version wanted, it looks like they're compromising and meeting at effectively changing things in 2018. Uh, the other thing this week that even though there hasn't been a whole lot of back and forth between the senators, you know, it's like one by one, they've been falling into line. Senator Marco Rubio this week really made it a point that this bill would not get his vote unless this final version would further expand the child tax credit. And it looks like a compromise was made, allowing 70% of the $2,000 per child tax credit to be refundable, up from 55%. And I haven't heard from Marco Rubio if he's a go yet, but what we did hear on Friday was the House Ways and Means Committee Chairman, Kevin Brady, basically said he's confident the bill will pass next week when it does come up for vote. Finally, it looks like as early as possibly Tuesday. And based on that, on Friday, we saw financials, technology, two of the largest weighting in the S&P 500. Really, both of those sectors led the charge along with small cap over large cap stocks on Friday. So that's pretty much the update we have on the tax reform bill. Many other areas that I could tell you the rumors, but we're so close to getting the actual factual details. I prefer not to go into any kind of rumors. Let's just wait to see what the actual bill says and we'll look at it next week. 
Yeah, that's the wise course, because you want to ultimately know what is it you're dealing with, not what could you be dealing with. Okay, Uh, there's been great anticipation with stocks leading through this exchange over the past two months. But, you know, you do have to wonder how things are going to be once the news is settled in and investors relook at valuations early next year. You really have to wonder if there's going to be any profit taking. Yeah, and especially based on the tax reform bill, if we see some details like we saw that it would hurt some of the technology sectors, we saw technology really get hit a couple of weeks ago from some of the measures that were being discussed at that point. So, right, we really don't know all the details. We could see some adjustments in the market next week once we finally see those. But, you know, it's really hard to say right now, John. The right cyclical sectors are working right now. That's your technology sectors, your industrials, your financials, consumer discretionary coming back. And that's actually something I'd like to really highlight on right now for our listeners. Just given the recent retail sales figures this week, which continue to support the inflection we've seen there. And that started, John, I've been covering it since the end of the earnings season where we saw just a real solid week of retail earnings and that helped encourage some, maybe some bottom fishing, some purchases that were being made at that time. And then, of course, as I mentioned, right after Thanksgiving, we had a 16% increase year over year in online sales from that period Thanksgiving all the way through Cyber Monday. And I reported on that as well. So this, very interesting to me. Now we've got some economic data to take a look at. November retail sales were up 0.8%. And October's numbers were revised higher, up 0.5% from 0.2%, excluding auto. So you take that out of the November numbers, retail sales were actually up 1% if you take out autos. Digging deeper, John, if you look at the spending activity in the retail sales report, it basically showed uh, very solid progress across the discretionary categories. So, you know, this story continues to develop, and I've been mentioning that here for almost a month now. Things look pretty good in retail, and, and I believe we've also, in our investment management, we've been taking advantage of that. Then we move over another column here. Let's look at inventories. Inventory data did come out this week, dropped 0.1% in October, and essentially that tells us that sales growth is outpacing inventory growth. Very simple, very easy, John. And there's one more number I want to bring up as it relates essentially to the Fed as far as the economic numbers this week, and that was the CPI data. Increased about 0.4% while the core only rose about 0.1%. That's if you exclude oil, you exclude food. Year over year, there was an increase of 2.2% for that headline number. That includes everything. And only 1.7% for the core number. That's the number the Fed really concentrates and looks at. And as the Fed mentioned this week, it's the one area they continue to focus on. We are currently below the target of 2%. But currently, from what I understand right now, it's in no way encouraging the Fed to be more aggressive. That's pretty much how the market's looking at it, how investors are looking at it, and that's how the Fed's looking at it. So uh, essentially, you know, we're going to continue to see this gradual pace. The Fed said we're only expecting three rate hikes next year and another two in 2019. If things change, obviously they can change that forecast. But the market reacted to that this week with the Treasury yield essentially flattening. Is there anything else you'd like to review for the week? I think the major event this week, besides the central banks and the tax reform bill announcements, and as things come to kind of a vote here on that, is really the launch of Bitcoin futures. And 
the CBOE essentially released that. We had trading and I think it's a one-month contract right now. And Chris Sheridan, just to let everyone know, had just a great interview. I listened to it. Just I think it was released today on Friday. Essentially comparing and contrasting the Bitcoin run-up here to the tulip mania. Obviously, that comparison has been made multiple times. But this interview was with Demelza Hayes, a cryptocurrency research analyst from Incrementum. And it was just a great interview. And, and I highly advise our listeners to, to jump in on that if they're as heavily interested in the subject, maybe with their pocketbooks or essentially wanting to learn more about it. But I read an interesting note this week that I, I would definitely also like to add here by Louis Gaff at GavCal Research that the addition of futures now to Bitcoin adds a new element to the table that has not been there before, and that's leverage. Louis said that this Bitcoin bubble is completely unique and unlike anything he said he's ever seen or witnessed in his experiences and in investments because what we're seeing is this exponential rise in price. It hasn't been triggering an increase in supply. And this is the first bubble that's been inflating, I guess you could call it, entirely without leverage. That is until now. And that's why he's discussing it in the paper, how interesting this is and, and what this element adds to it. In the end, he basically said that if we see a sharp drop in the currency, okay, that's possible. We saw, an, I think, an 8% drop this week. Very small compared to obviously where it's been since January. But given that there is leverage now involved, that kind of changes the animal a little bit. And that could have some repercussions, he said, on other assets. Because let's say you've got Bitcoin in a, an investment account that's leveraged. 35% margin against the position and let's say there's margin calls because Bitcoin drops there's volatility involved with a speculative investment that's moving like it is and he says you take one of these accounts it's got Bitcoin the S&P 500 in it maybe an index ETF or stocks US treasuries etc these things could be forced to liquidate positions to fund any kind of Bitcoin loss. So basically, he said, futures, leverage, etc. will change the landscape of Bitcoin trading and we'd be wise of investors to educate themselves on the matter. One more thing, John, that I read this week that I found interesting was Caterpillar's results on a report they mentioned, which was a year-over-year -year increase of about 26% in November machine sales, year-over-year. -year. Now, I, I didn't dig in deeper to see if this is, oh, well, they get one major contract, one major country making a huge budget sales pitch or whatnot. So I, I didn't dig into the, the numbers, which I really should have here. But I've always looked at Caterpillar as a barometer to infrastructure building, to global growth. And that was the story back when we were investing in commodities in the bull market of the 2000s. So that was a very interesting story to me. It was one thing I was like, you know, that really piqued my interest. And uh, the light bulb went off. But valuations, a lot of the technical analysis we received, something from Vermillion this week on emerging markets and the trend there is still very solid. Just mentioning that here, that Caterpillar and the technicals and the valuations look pretty solid. And that's why we're also in emerging market equities for our growth investors. Well, it's been a busy week. And of course, we're heading into the holiday weeks next week. So we'll have to see where it goes. But Ryan Paplava, once again, appreciate it. No problem. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. You're listening to the Financial Sense News Hour at FinancialSense.com. To speak to Jim Paplava or his financial planning team, call us toll free at 888-486-3939. That's 888-486-3939. We'd be glad to help you plan your customized investment portfolio. 
You know, Financial Sense News Hour listeners should remember that our premium members are able to hear the weekday Financial Sense News Hour featuring interviews with top economic commentators and experts. If you're not a member, here's one of the interviews you missed this week. 2017 has been an absolutely great stock market run. It has been uh, phenomenal. And on a total return basis, the S&P 500 is up 13 months in a row now, basically ever since the election. And um, that is a phenomenal performance. So as retail investors in particular, get your statement every month or see it, your email that you get in your inbox, whatever it is, and you look and you go, okay, you know, my portfolio is up. That's great. And you put it in the drawer and you move on. And, and uh, it's just been so easy. And, and uh, it's been very unusual in that sense. If you look at equity factors, things like momentum, value, size, you know, low vol, that's, that was kind of a popular strategy for a while, yield, those kind of things. Really, the standout performer was momentum. And so if you wanted to outperform in 2017, uh, you wanted to be exposed to that momentum factor. You just buy what, what went up and you just kept buying it because that is consistently outperformed pretty much all year long. And a lot of the other factors have lagged. Uh, I'm going to say more value-oriented factors like straight-up value, dividend yield, those kind of things have, have actually lagged. And then volatility in the market has just been so small. Intraday volatility has just been so low. It's just been a great run with no volatility, and everyone feels really good about things right now. Well, it's called the Santa Claus Rally, and boy, has Santa been delivering as the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ power up to new highs. Joining us on the program from Piper Jaffray is Craig Johnson. Craig, let's talk about where we are now in this market, where we are in this cycle, because I'll tell you, this has been one hell of a year for investors. I don't care if you were in bonds, you made money. If you were in gold, you made money. Maybe not so much in energy, but just about anything else. I don't care if it was some commodities like oil or gold or even emerging markets. It's been a good year for investors overall. Jim, I got to agree with you. Yes, it's been a terrific year for investors. Let's start off by putting some statistics around how good of a year this has been. If you look back throughout 2017, thus far, we've seen one out of every four trading days this year, a new all-time high. We've gone 64 weeks without a 2% drawdown, and we've only had four trading days this year that have registered losses greater than 1%. So no question, it's been a terrific year, Jim. And I think at this point in time, a lot of investors are now saying, what have you done for me for 2018 now? As they set their sights on this with only a few weeks left to go in this trading year. From our perspective, technical perspective, first and foremost, we're ending the year how we started the year, which is we're at all-time new highs. And I still get a sense that a lot of investors are still looking at this market saying, I want to get in. They're looking for pullbacks. They're looking for opportunities. There hasn't been that many opportunities this year to get in. The VIX is at the lowest readings we've seen going back into the 1980s. And this market still continues to power ahead. And people are still looking in from the outside. If there's any mania out there, Jim, it's probably in the Bitcoin world. But it's definitely not in the stock market at this point in time from our perspective. Speaking of Bitcoin, let's talk about it. You know, it's a cryptocurrency, but, you know, I'm just trying to think, how could you use it in commerce? In other words, let's say I took three Bitcoins, walked into Mercedes dealership when it was at 18,000, gave them three coins. Next day, it was down 20%. So how do you use it? And is this really, as you say, a mania? Well, 
If I go back and I look at some statistics and you think about Bitcoin at this point in time and you compare it to other kind of asset classes out there, you know, I would make the observation that in terms of Bitcoins and you compare it with some of the larger, you know, stocks out there in the marketplace and just to put it into an example for you, if I look at the current market cap of Bitcoin, they're around 200 and $27 billion at this point in time. That's actually larger than Visa, and you're not too far away from Walmart at $288 billion. And you look at the time in terms of a mania. Apple, for it to reach where it is at now from its IPO date, took 29 years. If I look at Wells Fargo, it's 51 years to get to where it's at. And then you come back and you look at Bitcoin. Well, it's taken eight years to reach a market cap of $27 billion. So when you go to the grand scheme of things, really only thing that's been faster has been Facebook when it IPO'd on 5-18 of 2012 to get to its current market cap of $526 billion, Jim. So the ascent on Bitcoin has been very rapid, very steep. From a technician's perspective, it does look like a parabolic type move and parabolic type moves tend to end poorly. But we can't say at this point in time that this parabolic move is over. And Jim, you also asked, what are other things that people can do with Bitcoin? You said go into a Mercedes dealership. Well, as you know, Bitcoins are a cryptocurrency. You can exchange parts or bits of Bitcoins to make purchases. So you don't have to spend $18,000 for a cup of coffee. You can basically use a fraction of a Bitcoin to go and pay for it. I've even seen some instances, Jim, on the internet where people have been actually heating their homes in cold climates with the exhaust and the heat that comes out of these Bitcoin miners. They tend to put out a lot of heat, and if people are smart about it, they can recycle that and use that as a secondary heating source for their homes. Wow. (laughs) But overall, Jim, for me, I would just say that I don't think the Bitcoin move is over. I would say this to me feels like the internet in 1995. It also, I can see some parallels to the early days of computers. Right now in the Bitcoin world, if you're going to do mining and those other kind of activities, you got to figure out how to put the machines together. You got to assemble these things put video cards in, do all sorts of things like that, it hasn't matured. And I think there's going to be a maturing process that takes place. And as that happens, there will be some pullbacks along the way. But I really do think that they will be bought and bought pretty quickly. And Jim, lastly, I'll just say, here's why. There's 7 billion people in the world. 2.5 billion people are on the internet. 1 billion have true banking, traditional banking ties. And so you got that gap of 1.5 billion people that are not being served and you're only creating 18,000 Bitcoins a day at this point, and a lot of demand to buy those coins. So it's a mania, but it's not over until it's over, Jim. You know, let's get back to the market, because if you look at this strong rally that began after the election, Craig, I don't care if you're looking at the Dow, you're looking at the NASDAQ, you're looking at the S&P, it looks like an escalator, nice, smooth, upward ride. And of course, if we do get tax reform and we do get corporate taxes cut, that's going to help earnings for 2018. So I guess let's move on to 2018. What does it look like going into the new year? Well, I think 2018 kind of reminds me of a Dr. Seuss book, perhaps a hop, a drop, and a pop. And as I think about 2018, I think it looks like this. Tax reform gets done, repatriation starts to come in. There's $1.1 trillion sitting in overseas investment accounts. And if that money starts coming back in at lower tax rates, I think there's going to be a lot of share buybacks or a stepped-up share buyback, special dividends, and I think a step-up in overall CapEx spending. So that would be very positive for the overall economy. That's going to, I think, push this market higher 
in the early part of next year. Now, where this potential drop scenario comes in is keep a solid eye on what's happening with 10-year bond yields. Are they going to steepen? Are they going to continue to flatten? Or are they going to potentially invert? I think that once you see a normalization in European bond yields compared to what you have in the U.S. as the European Central Bank steps back next year, I worry that you see rates go up on the long end too far, too fast here in the States, and you end up with a scenario like 2013 where you had a little bit of a taper tantrum and you saw bonds sell off quickly and then that rolled over and created a little bit of a follow-on sell-off in the equity market. And that's where I think you get your drop scenario from. But given how strong the economy is, earnings are moving higher, valuations are not in this new world of tax reform, are not extreme based upon history. And that's where I think buyers come in pretty quickly that have been looking at this market from the outside, finally step in and put some of that cash back to work. You get a pop and then you end the year toward 2850. So just to kind of recap that, Jim, you go from here to about 3000 and then you get a pullback in this market that will take you, from my perspective, maybe 15, 20% pullback and then ultimately end the year toward 2850. So 2850 is your year-end target for next year? Correct, for 2018. Let me talk about something else. We have this stimulus, assuming it's going to go through, which will be massive. And, of course, we know that will help earnings and the economy. But, Craig, the Fed just raised interest rates, and it looks like the futures market is pricing another rate hike in January and another one in March. So we could be following a similar pattern that we've seen this year, where the Fed came in in January following a December rate hike, then they raised it again in March, waited, sat back, and waited till December. Could we see that same scenario play out again? Because the futures market are telling us they're going in January and March, And I guess the question is, what could go wrong here? Because you have monetary stimulus that is tightening somewhat. At the same time, you're applying fiscal stimulus. Normally, you see the two work together, not against each other. Yeah, I think there are challenges here that can happen with this. Again, many people are nervous about raising rates too quickly. I think that is definitely a possibility if they're going to raise rates too quickly. And the discussion of still maybe three rate hikes in 2018 you know, we have seen additional commentary from Yellen that this is going to be a continuation of the policy, but perhaps that will change when the new Fed president comes on board. It's an interesting time, Jim, and I just, again, think about what can go wrong in this kind of scenario, and I really think it comes down to, as you're applying that fiscal stimulus, the economy picks up, the Fed responds to that, the long end of the curve doesn't move, and you end up in a very awkward position for banks and for institutions. But I think the bigger worry is rates at the long end respond. You get a meaningful sell-off. And the more pressure that we build at that short end down there, Jim, the more of that kind of compressed spring that I think is actually getting built into this fixed income market. And a move above 260, 270 on that 10-year reverses a 30-year technical downtrend in rates. And that's a worrisome spot for me. Again, too far, too fast, I think creates a big sell-off in fixed income and that rolls over into equities. That's where I think things could go wrong, potentially for next year, and leads to that kind of drop scenario in the hop, drop, pop outlook for next year. So what is the danger point, in your opinion, on the 10-year? I mean, right now we're at roughly about 2.4%. How high does it go before you think we get into the danger zone? I think your danger zone kind of starts to play out around 260, 270. Because by then, you'll be taking out the highs you had seen in yields post the election last year. And I think at that point in time, when you break out, 
you're also not only going to be breaking out of the highs you had seen back in 2016, we're actually reversing the downtrend off the 1981 highs back in that kind of area. That's a danger point. And I sat here and I've thought many hours about, do you see a momentum response on a 30-year downtrend reversal or does it not matter? And I've asked many great technicians and we've kind of come to the conclusion, yeah, there'll likely be a momentum response. You'll have a lot of talking heads all over the networks talking about this 31-year downtrend reversal. And I think it will be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point in time. And that's where I worry about shorter-term sell-offs and corrections as everything starts to adjust. And that's the danger zone, 260, 270. Okay, so in your opinion, the real risk is rates normalized because one thing that has suppressed the long end here in the U.S. is the differential between yields between here, Europe, and Japan, where in many cases the short end is actually negative. So, you know, if you're an institutional investor over there, where are you going to put your money? You're probably putting it in treasuries. But as that gap normalizes, maybe not as much money comes in or do you think that, is there a possibility, Craig, with all the debt that's outstanding at the consumer level, corporate level, that we could run some risk of that tightening leading to a possible recession? I think it's too early for a discussion of a recession. I think your bigger danger, again, is an adjustment in the curve at the long end, too far, too fast. I think that's the bigger risk for 2018 coming up. There's a lot of cross currents and a lot of changes that are coming. And I think that's the bigger danger. I think you're spot on correct in terms of thinking about Europe and rates over there. I've been over there traveling in the last couple of months. And as I talk to a lot of private banks and managers, clients over there are still very hungry to buy high yield. Any sort of fixed income product, they haven't grown comfortable enough to go out and want to buy equities at this point in time. You're trying to get these high yields and these returns over there versus stepping out and buying equities. I think that mentality will eventually have to change. And Craig, you know, as you look at these markets right now, and even if this money comes back from overseas, if you're Apple sitting on $250 billion of cash or you're a drug company like Pfizer with almost $40 billion, where are you going to park that cash if you bring it back? You're going to have to keep it in treasuries. You certainly can't take it down to the local bank and feel safe about where you've deposited it. Well, I think if you're going to park all that cash on these balance sheets like that, Jim, I think that's going to lead to perhaps investors that are going to be looking at all this cash here and saying that this needs to be deployed. So perhaps there'll be another environment of the corporate raiders coming out to do more M&A and those kind of activities as they see all that cash sitting there. But more likely than not, Jim, I think that money will probably get pretty quickly committed to either a special dividend in a meaningful way for a lot of these companies, or it'll be a dramatic step up in buybacks. But I got to tell you, Jim, I think it's going to be more special dividend than corporate buybacks. You and I have talked about many times on this show that there's been all these repurchasing and buybacks that have been happening over years, and the market has been shrinking. The total shares outstanding on the S&P 500 have shrunk over 5% over the last couple of years. And there's 25% overall fewer stocks on the New York Stock Exchange at this point in time. So again, we continue to see this shrinking market. I would say that corporations will do more dividends than they will do buybacks. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is could be political pressure. If they get that special one-time tax or lower tax and they 
bring it back and all they're doing is buying stocks and paying dividends, I'm sure the president's not going to be too happy because they want to see capital investment, which is what they're trying to do with this tax law. I want to move on in terms of the market itself. If you were looking at sectors that you think would do well in 2018, what would be your favorite picks? Well, Jim, officially right now at Fiber Jaffer, we're overweight tech, we're overweight energy, and we're overweight basic materials. And we are underweight consumer cyclicals, staples, and utilities. And as we go through our very deep relative strength analysis work that we do looking at all the stocks, sectors, and everything else, that's where it suggests that we should be. I'm starting to see some signs of improvement in consumer cyclicals, not 100% conclusive yet. I'm starting to see also some improvement in financials. But again, some stocks are breaking out, but I haven't seen enough evidence yet to make a change. I would say right now, if you look at the relative outperformance that we have seen in industrials this year, it brings back a pretty strong common historical theme in the marketplace, which has been, where are we in the overall business cycle? And when industrials have historically led, it has meant that we are at the mid part of a traditional business cycle. I feel like this is one of the clearest markers we have seen in terms of the business cycle in years, as it has been kind of this long, kind of silly, putty, strung out, low trajectory recovery over the last eight to nine years. And now it's finally starting to pick up. If that is indeed the case, that we are at the mid part of this cycle, then we need to be thinking about inflation. We need to be thinking about commodities. And we need to be thinking about energy, basic materials as the next place to be. Because toward the last part of any business cycle is where you finally get that kind of wage inflation. You start to see the commodity complex work. And that's perhaps what lies ahead in 2018 and 2019. You know, and that's typically what you see, as you mentioned, in a business cycle. Bonds peak first, then it's stocks, and then it's usually commodities. So do you think 2018, Craig, is the year we finally see the energy stocks break out? Because despite this uptick that we've seen in the price of crude, the energy stocks are still lagging most sectors within the S&P. I think you're going to see the energy stocks work. A lot of them are reversing on the charts. But they've got a lot of work to do. They were the worst performing sector in 2017 by a pretty good margin compared to what you've seen with tech and those kind of things. So I think it's going to be a good year, Jim. I don't know if it's going to be the leadership area of the market, but I think it's going to be a much better year for these energy names. And I've been recommending investors to be overweight these names. And I would start to be looking at the Chevron, the large cap multinationals that have been doing well along with the refiners, and now it's starting to broaden out into some of the E&P type names, and I would take a look at some of those names in the E&P space. We had mentioned things like COG in our monthly publication, Jim, and that's probably one of the better high-quality ones out there to be thinking about on the E&P side. Well, listen, Craig, as we close, if our listeners want to follow your work, tell them how they can easily do so, please. Yes, they can reach out to me at craig.w.johnson at pjc.com. Merry Christmas, prosperous New Year to you, Craig. Next time you're in town, let's do another trip to Fogo. Let's do it. I'd be happy to do it. You're listening to the Financial Sense News Hour at FinancialSense.com. If you're approaching retirement age or concerned about making plans for those retired years and having adequate income, you're going to want to hear our Lifetime Income series every Monday and Tuesday here at FinancialSense.com. Right now, here's a preview of this week's Lifetime Income program. 
Joining me on the program is Kathy Fetke. She's a specialist in real estate. Kathy, let's talk about real estate. This has been a good year for it. Prices are up 5 or 6%, and you think they could go up further next year. Why do you believe that to be the case? I mean, it depends on which kind of real estate you're talking about, but for residential and specifically single-family homes, there is really a lack of inventory, severe lack of inventory. And then you add on the loss of thousands of homes from all these devastating storms we've had. There's some real issues out there on supply and demand that we don't see you know, being solved anytime soon. So whenever you have a lack of supply and strong demand, you tend to see prices go up. That's what we think we'll see. Now, there'll be some markets where prices just can't go up much more, and we might may see a stall there. But even so, in the highest price markets, I'm born and raised in San Francisco, even when you say, how could anybody afford to buy here, somehow they, they figured it out. It's amazing. So, so even when we're beyond affordability issues, when you have really supply-demand imbalances, then you'll continue to see prices go up. Well, oil prices have been heading higher. They're not down at 40. They're not down at 50 and almost hit 60. Will this trend continue into the new year? And will eventually this translate into higher prices for energy companies? Joining us on the program from Energy Prospectus is Dan Steffens. Dan, let's talk about oil prices here on the day you and I are speaking. Oil is around $57 a barrel. It looked like we were going to head over 60. I know that's one of your targets for the end of the year. Are you still holding firm on that? Yeah, I think uh, there's strong resistance, which looks like about at 59. I was looking today before you called, and uh, WTI oil went over $55 a barrel on November 11th, and it's been over that price since then. It went all the way up to 59 on November 24th, and then it's been flopping around real close to 57, up and down. And I think what we've got is some of the oil traders, they've got this thing trading into band, and so when it gets near the top of their trading you know, range, they sell. And then when it gets to the bottom, they buy. So they're kind of keeping it in this tight range. But all it's going to really take is some kind of unplanned supply outage or something like that, because the oil markets are balanced. I mean, in fact, they're probably undersupplied, which is why you got OECD and U.S. inventories are falling pretty rapidly and at a time of the year when they usually grow. So when you take, you know, one thing that people are forgetting about is this word called depletion, which means existing wells deplete, and especially shale depletes rapidly. But the other thing is that we have demand that's growing. The IA has had to increase its projections. The EIA has done the same. So you have two things. You have depletion and growing demand. At the same time, the big guys have yet to accelerate their capital expenditures because everybody is showing a lot of discipline. At least the big guys are. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think people do forget that demand for oil-based products goes up by like a million and a half barrels per day per year. In fact, the IEA's latest uh, oil market report, which is a global a look at the global oil market, came out on uh, December 14th, and uh, they confirmed their view that uh, their prediction that for 2017 the increase would be 1.5 million barrels per day. Now, I will you know tell your listeners that historically, when the actuals are known, which we really won't know actuals until probably the end of March or April, what 
you know, demand and production growth really were for the previous year. Every year they have revised upward global demand for like the last five years, and I think that could happen again. And then they always like shoot low for the next year. They say they're saying 1.3 million barrels a day for 2018, but my guess it'll be that or higher because I think it's all based on the global economy. And if the global economy keeps growing, expanding, then you know you get more demand for energy. The other worries are that this U.S. production is just going to keep growing and growing and growing at this fast pace. And it might, but I think you need a lot higher oil price than what we have today to get the companies to go out and add a lot more rigs. I don't think the rig count is just going to explode to the upside just because we're in the mid-50s. So as you look at this, you know, if you take a look at the profits this year, some of the biggest profit gains this year have come from the oil sector. Although recently we've seen some of the oil stocks move, if you look at all 10 sectors, energy is still one of the big laggards for this year. In your opinion, Dan, why hasn't this translated into higher stock prices? Because the valuations on some of these companies are just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I I do my valuations right now. I'm still using $50 oil for all future periods and $3 gas. Now, the gas price, natural gas price is a bit below that right now, but the oil price at 57, if I would change all my models to 57, they'd really be a lot higher. And across the board, and I'm I'm tracking about 30 upstream companies, and these are high-quality companies with a lot of growth, strong balance sheets. They're trading at about a 40 to 50% discount to my valuations. And over the years, this is one of the widest gaps to my valuations I've seen. Now, my theory is that you've got a lot of Wall Street fund managers wanting to sell off their losers for the year. This is tax loss selling. So they can net those losses against their gains and they don't want to send out, you know, K1s to their partners and their hedge funds. They don't want to send out K1s with big taxable incomes. And think about this too. And I think increasing the tax loss selling is this new tax bill, this income tax bill that'll probably be passed here before the end of the year that's going to have lower tax rates in it. So you know, now is the year to recognize as many losses as you can in your portfolio and, uh, you know, harvest your gains next year when you have a lower tax rate. So we've got a lot of tax harvesting that's going on. Looking forward into next year, we've got synchronized economic growth. You've got growth coming globally, especially in the emerging markets. And also, once again, shale, as many estimate, is not has been as high as, let's say, the EIA originally talked about. So looking into next year. What do you see happening to the energy markets? We know we have Saudi Aramco coming public. They've agreed, at least at this point, to extend the cuts well into next year. So looking forward into 2018, is that the year that energy finally breaks out? Or could we be in the doldrums as we've been throughout much of this year? Well, I think sometime in the second quarter is when it'll be officially announced that the oil markets are back in balance. Demand for oil is seasonal, and the first quarter of the year is the softest demand. Now, it usually doesn't go down. It's, it just goes flat, and then it stays flat uh, through April or May, and then you get a big increase as the refiners ramp up production of summer blend gasoline. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but summer blend gasoline has to include more crude oil. In the winter, you can blend in more NGLs, especially butane can be blended in, which is one reason why winter gasoline is cheaper than summer gasoline. But anyway, that's when you get a big spike in crude oil demand. Now, this year for 2017, demand went up from the first quarter to the second quarter of 
at 2.3 million barrels a day. So if we would get anything close to that this year, you're going to see a big uh, gap between supply and demand show up. And I think that's why OPEC at their last meeting when they agreed to extend these uh, production quotas through the end of 2018, they also announced that they were going to revisit it, have another meeting in June. And that would be uh, a timing of when we should start seeing this rebalancing. So that's when I think we really push oil up to where it should be. And in, in my opinion, the right price, what's the right price for oil, that should be somewhere in the 65 to $70 range. I still think we're too low to attract the capital needed to get the future supplies that we need. And if we don't get a higher price, we are probably looking at you know shortages in 2019 or 2020 because so many long-range, big global projects have been canceled or pushed back. So when you're looking at this, let's talk about the companies themselves. It was surprising, and maybe this had a lot to do with the euro, but the best-performing stocks this year have been the European majors. You know, you take a Total, a Royal Dutch, or a British Petroleum and compare them to stocks like an Exxon or a Chevron here. Yeah, well, one reason that's happened is because the Brent oil price, the European oil price, has gapped up from the American price. So uh, WTI, which today is selling for $57, you've got Brent trading for about $63.50. So a $6.50 difference between those two. So these companies that have a lot of uh, oil production that gets sold into the European market, they're getting a better price than we are for their oil. And that gap is probably why they've attracted some capital. And that gap will probably continue for a while, especially because this big North Sea pipeline uh, is going to be offline for a couple of weeks. So they're going to be willing to pay more to get oil over there. But uh, I think, yeah, at the first, when there's sector rotation on Wall Street and it comes back into the energy sector, the fund managers feel safer putting it into the well-known large caps. And then the next ones are the, the you know the large independents like EOG Resources, Continental, which has made a strong comeback this year already, Concho, those larger multi-billion dollar market cap companies. And then the last move when Wall Street really starts buying into it is the, the small caps. And that's where there's some just incredible upside in some of these small caps right now. So when you take a look at this industry, the thing that really surprised me, maybe this had to do with low interest rates, it was widely anticipated when they brought prices down, especially when they got down to, let's say, $26 a barrel in 2016, a lot more companies would have gone under. That was not the case. I mean, there were companies that uh, folded. But Dan, what do you think held up the industry? Well, some of the better companies, you know, they have pretty strong balance sheets, they have pretty strong bank uh, relations, and they also have good hedging programs. They had hedged forward a lot of their production. So, you know, the big sharp drops in price don't really impact them unless they stay down for a long time. Now, they did stay down, you know, for quite a while. This is one of the longest and deepest oil cycles that I've ever seen. And during that time period, they just really knuckled down and got their uh, cost way down. And the service providers, uh, you know, were willing to work with them and bring down drilling costs, completion costs, uh, you know, everything came down and, uh, and they buckled down, tightened their belts and made it through. And now they're in really good shape. And, uh, you know, oil has gone up like $15 a barrel since June. 
And man, most of that drops right to the bottom line. So they're going to really report some strong fourth quarter results. So it ought to be pretty interesting. So if you're looking at this sector, I mean, big money has been going into the big stocks. That's the sort of the safe play. The PEs have been low and plus the dividends have been maintained as well. What about the rest of the sector, the mid-tiered companies, the small cap? You said a lot of these small cap stocks are just ridiculously undervalued. Yeah, well, one thing, I mean, I think some of the general funds, you know, that have a broad spectrum of investments, and that's what they're required to have, they're going to have to rotate some money into the energy sector. And think about it, with all the bankruptcies and everything, there's fewer stocks to buy. So, I mean, they're going to have to look deeper into these mid-cap companies to, uh, you know, find some real value. And I think the high-quality mid-caps that got plenty of liquidity, they're going to get a lot of attention. Now, one of the things that I've been seeing in a lot of the commentaries coming out is these companies that have been outspending their cash flow. They're growing reserves, they're growing production rapidly, but they've been outspending their cash flow, and Wall Street doesn't like that. So they're, the one criteria they're really looking at is companies that can maintain you know, a decent drilling and completion program operating strictly from cash flow. So they're still growing production, but maybe not as fast as they could have if they were you know, real aggressive. But they're holding their acreage and they're, you know, increasing production. So that's one criteria I'd look at. So overall, the energy sector is undervalued. At some point, things always go to extremes, either on the low end or the high end. You know, you think back of what was going on with energy stocks between 2005 and 2008. So if there was a catalyst next year that could cause energy stocks to rise, in your opinion, what would that be? Well, when supply and demand really get tight, then any kind of unplanned supply outage can have a dramatic increase in oil prices. Now, that can be uh, this North Sea pipeline just this last week got announced that's taken 400,000 barrels a day offline. Well, the guys operating that pipeline say that they should have it fixed in two weeks. Well, what if it's worse than they thought? What if it takes it offline for six weeks or something? That could be an unplanned outage. You know, that's this is similar to remember when we had the Canadian forest fires that took some production offline for quite a bit of time. That could happen. You could have, you know, some Yemen, you know, shoots a missile into a Saudi Arabian oil field or something. They're trying to right now. So if that happens, that could really... Uh, do something. And I think Venezuela's production is just going to keep declining. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of problem areas in the world where we still rely on uh, for oil production growth. And if anything happens to any of them, now you can uh, see a pretty dramatic increase in the price of oil. So given that, and then also given the seasonality, so maybe some weakness in the first part of the year, and then maybe we get a liftoff because, you know, one thing that's going to happen if this tax bill goes through, it's going to make it more favorable for investment. Trump is freeing up, uh, for example, he got the Keystone Pipeline through. He's trying to remove the restrictions on drilling on federal lands. What about increasing supply eventually coming online, though? Well, there is probably going to be, uh, you know, increasing supply through the first quarter because a lot of these upstream companies, they're completing a lot of those duck wells, drilled but uncompleted wells. They like to complete a lot of those in, in December because they want to get those wells into their year-end reserve reports because their bank lines of credits are uh, tied to their proven reserves. So they want to get those wells into their proven reserves. So you have a lot, of, little bit of that flush production that comes on right when those wells are hooked up. And so that'll carry over to the first quarter. And then weather, weather does impact field operations. So if we have real severe January and February winter weather, it looks like West Texas and the Permian Basin is going to get some pretty significant winter weather in the next couple of weeks. 
that can slow things down out in the field and, uh, you know, affect production operations. So, and one thing to remember on this tax law thing is if they significantly lower the corporate tax rate, which I'm sure they are, that's got to be in the final bill, that's going to have an outsized impact on some of these upstream oil companies because they have got big deferred tax liabilities that were calculated at 36, 38% tax rates that are now, let's say they recalculate those down. So what's the entry? I mean, they reduce their tax liability, their tax liability on the balance sheet, they have to credit income someplace. So that's going to help their balance sheet ratios. And I think that'll really help how they're viewed maybe on Wall Street too. So I just think there could possibly be quite a bit of rotation early on into the energy sector. But from a fundamental supply and demand difference, I think it's really going to become evident the tightness of the market in the second quarter. So given where we are right now, what would you be doing if you were, let's say, an investor? Well, I'd be doing my homework now and, uh, you know, deciding how, what's your risk level? Do you want to go with some of the larger companies? Uh, we have eight of them we call the Elite Eight. And these are all companies with like 10 billion or more market cap, very strong balance sheets. And, uh, you know, they're, they're lower risk just because they're strong balance sheets and they have a lot of running room. And then just, you know, kind of go and start making your pick. What would your ideal portfolio look like? And then, you know, how much exposure do you want to have to the Permian? How much do you want to have to the scoop stack play in Oklahoma, which looks fantastic to me? And then, uh, you know, right now, natural gas is out of favor. But, you know, that can change quickly if you have a a few really cold weeks to draw down the storage level. That can change quickly, too. So anyway, there's just uh, right now is, you know, when you really need to do your research. All right. Well, given that, Dan, if our listeners would like to follow your work, tell them how they could do so, please. Well, our organization is called Energy Prospectus Group, and they can just look it up on the internet. It's just energyprospectus.com, and that uh, there they learn how to join. Uh, it costs $350 to get our full premium membership, and that gets you our newsletters and all of our uh, detailed reports on these companies. We publish about 200 individual company reports per year, quarterly updates on all the ones that are in our model portfolios. So if they just go to the website and if uh, they want to send me an email, my email is dmstephens, that's S-T-E-F-F-E-N-S, at comcast.net. And I'll give them a little discount just because they come through you, Jim. All right. Well, super. Well, listen, Dan, thanks for coming on the program. Happy holidays and a prosperous new year to you. Yeah, you too. Coming up in the next hour of the program, the Fed has decided to raise rates once more, and we'll see if we can decipher exactly what it is, Chair Yellen has been saying. And then a conversation with John Roque, part one of a bigger series that we're going to continue next week here on the program as the Financial Sense News Hour continues at FinancialSense.com. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies profiled on or advertised with Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. 